Amen. All right, the 11th chapter of Romans this morning, Romans chapter number 11. I feel as if we've already covered a lot of ground. We've already dealt with a lot of great principles this morning. We've been reminded of the goodness of God. We've been reminded of the voice of God. We've been warned against the things that could so easily hinder our soul. We have, we have dealt with things that uh, God clearly has ordained that we needed to hear today. In Romans chapter number 11, we have arrived at proof number five of the five proofs that we began looking at as to the answer to the question, hath God cast away his people? And we're not, we will not cover all the previous proofs that we dealt with. You can certainly go online and listen to those previous messages if you need to. We dealt with most of them last week. But this morning we want to deal with verses 7 through 10. And we want to read just these uh, few verses together. And we're going to look at really one principle, this one proof today, uh, about uh, what the Apostle Paul is writing about here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. With response to the question that was asked about grace, or the statement about grace and works, here's Paul's statement in verse 7. What then? Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. According as it is written, God hath given them the spirit of slumber, eyes that they should not see, ears that they should not hear unto this day. And David saith, let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. Let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back always. I want you to notice a couple of very pointed things. Number one, we see in verse number seven that Israel did not acquire what it was seeking. We might say they did not acquire whom they were seeking. Number two, we would say that they did not obtain it by what they were seeking, but the Bible says election hath obtained it. Thirdly, we see that there is also a reference to people, the rest were blinded. You see three very pointed truths just in verse number seven. Verse number eight, we see a pointed truth as well. God hath given them the spirit of slumber. So we see that this, this blindness, this hardness of heart, was given directly by the hand of God. God hath given them the spirit of slumber. We'll deal with that phrase in a few moments. Specifically, how did he give them the spirit? Eyes that should not see and ears that should not hear unto this day. God was the giver of this blindness. <laughs> Number nine, or, or, or point five, and David saith, let their table be made a snare. Now, this is an important truth because this snare, this table that's referred to as a snare is a very powerful truth because we're dealing with something that we would be is unthinkable. That God would use something that was meant to be a provision and he would now use it as something that would be a trap. And again, these are the great truths of the Word of God that really, when we think about this, we almost struggle to see, is God's hand really in all of this? And then the last pointed statement I want to show you, verse 10, let their eyes be darkened that they may not see and bow down their back always. I want to deal with the subject this morning of God hath given them the spirit of slumber. 
God hath given them the spirit of slumber. This is message number 56 in the series on the book of Romans. This has been a mini-series in chapter number 11, dealing with the, the heading of the election of grace and then subtopics. So our subtopic today is God hath given them the spirit of slumber. Notice the word again, or the phrase, God hath given them. God hath given them the spirit of slumber. We're going to deal with that phrase today, but before we get to there, let's understand where we left off and where we finished. Those four proofs we gave, and we, we went into some detail on them, probably not as much as maybe we should have, but I believe we got the, we've got the emphasis, we've got the principles. But God was using Paul to teach that God had not cast away his people, that Israel had not fully been rejected. It was not a total rejection. Back when I outlined this chapter in our very first week of chapter number 11, I showed us that verses 1 through 10 deal with the rejection of the Jews was not a total rejection. So today we're going to end that thought. So if it's not a total rejection, then what is it? If it's not a complete casting away of Israel, then what is it? We ended last week in verse number 6 with the most, probably the most familiar uh, verse of this chapter. The Bible says, and if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. We ended with that thought, and we ended that verse, and we came to this conclusion. And we all know this today. Salvation, whether it's the Jew or the Gentile, is by the pure, unmerited, free grace and mercy of God. Salvation, whether it's the Jew or the Gentile, is by the pure, unmerited, free grace and mercy of God. The works or the efforts or the deeds of man has never, ever been involved in his own salvation. His works, his deeds are not involved in that. His salvation, if it comes to us, it does not come because of our works. It doesn't come because of anything other than his grace. Now, Paul stated that very clearly in verse number six, otherwise grace is no more grace. If I get it by works, then it's not grace. If I acquire it by works, then it's not grace. We have to remember that truth. Work is no more work. Paul made these truths very clear. This morning, I would ask you the question, do you have something in your mind right now as a reason as to why God saved you? If you have a single reason as to why God saved you, you are in danger of placing trust in your works. There should be nothing in our minds today that say, God was pleased to show mercy to me because of this. God showed me free grace because of this. Grace is free. Not because it didn't cost something, but it didn't cost us anything. It cost the Lord Jesus Christ. He voluntarily, willfully, in a covenant made before the foundation of the world, went to the cross and paid that penalty for his own. Now, none of us today, I believe, would leave here today, as far as I know, preaching or advocating a salvation by works. But if we have even the slightest idea that anything to do with the Jews or the Gentile and why God gave them grace and blinded the others, then we have a false idea of what the Bible is actually teaching. 
The Jews were not saved because they were Jews. The Gentiles were not saved because they were Gentiles. Because of what they did. Because of what they said. Verse 6, which we looked at last week. And I can't think of a better word than this. Verse 6 demolishes the doctrine of those who say, I justified myself by works. If a person says, I'm saved by works, take them to Romans 11.6 and say, then tell me what Romans 11.6 refers to. It demolishes that doctrine. So if today, if I have any remnant or any residue left of my works and why God has not given me the spirit of slumber, then I have a false notion and I am in some way advocating my own justification by my works. I gave us this final thought last week. The election of grace is not man choosing grace, but by which God freely chose us by his grace. So as we begin in verse number 7 this morning, and we're going to try to get down through verse number 10, we see that God gives something, and it's referred to as a hardness of heart. Now, we don't see the phrase hardness of heart here, but if you study through the scriptures, you find the hardness of heart is associated with God giving eyes that could not see and God giving ears that could not hear. In other words, when you see God's judicial blindness given to people, it is usually associated with hardness of heart. So as we look at this this morning, we see that God puts this hardness of heart in man, and we need to keep this principle in mind, that God giving hardness of heart to man comes by God's just decree and judgment. In other words, if God gives a man a hard heart, he is not acting unjust and he's not acting unfairly. Now, our human, our human minds are trying to wrap that. You're trying to grasp that. I'm trying to grasp that. How can that be? How can it be fair that God elects some and hardens others? Folks, we are not the first generation to ask this question. Generations upon generations have asked the question and have never been fully able to come to any conclusion except this, that God is sovereign in all that he does. Theologians and, and universities and churches have all tried to come to a reasonable explanation as to why God would give somebody the spirit of slumber. Why would he do that? And I will tell you, that is what has been the number one cause of leading to a lot of false doctrine that is based upon some sort of works is because man can't reconcile in his mind. How does God have a right to give some light and blind others? It is the perpetual question that's not just facing churches in 2019. It has been facing churches for every generation. It is one of those mysteries of God. God's punishment or God's giving of hardness of the heart results or is part of him punishing the unthankful, punishing the ungrateful. What does he do to the unthankful and ungrateful heart? He takes away all of their sense by placing them in darkness. Is man responsible for this? He's directly responsible for this. He is given darkness because of his rejection. What was Israel guilty of? 
rejection? Was it because Israel was not given light at one time? No, Israel had the light. They had the advantages, even above advantages that we would have had at that moment. Yet they rejected His truth. And they rejected this grace that He was offering. Today, this morning, the free grace of God is being offered to every single one of you here this morning. And if you reject that free grace, you are bringing upon yourself your own destruction and putting yourself in darkness. As I've said many, many times, do not blame the, blame the doctrine of election on why you're not saved today. Because if you're doing that, you are misusing the glorious truths, the precious truths of what this actually means. There is no one preventing you from coming to Christ today. God, and through Christ, has never turned away a person who's come seeking after Him and is following Him. Christ has never said, no, 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 you can't. The reality is, is the unbeliever today won't. If I knew there was an unbeliever here today, I could get so burdened by them in my mind and I could say, listen, I am going to drag you to the front and I'm going to deal with you until you will acknowledge and you will repent and you will believe and it would all be in vain if I'm trying to do it just in my own power. We believe in extending the offer of free grace to all people without any reservation. May it never be said about this church that we only want to present the gospel to certain folks. That's not what we believe at all. We do not even attempt to make an effort to say, who deserves it? That's why when you walk in the front doors of this church, it doesn't matter where you come from, what you look like, how much you have, that offer of God's free grace is going to be presented and given. But I know I cannot drag it out of you. I could show you the whole Bible and that will not guarantee that you're going to say, I repent and believe on Christ. But you're going to hear it anyway. The reality is, is we have no business arguing with who God gives the spirit of slumber to. Now we realize we're dealing with Israel primarily in chapter number 11. We established that the very first message, but he does not leave out the Gentiles. We're going to really start getting into that next week when we start in verse number 11. But this principle, this fifth proof that Paul declares here is very simply this. Now this is very wordy. I found out trying to give an outline. This is why I don't like outlines for myself. I'm too wordy. I can't give those three words point A, point B, point C, and sub, I just can't do it. So if this is too wordy, that's okay. Just get the principle here. The fifth proof that Paul is giving here is that those who stubbornly refuse the election of grace and the free mercy of God bring damnation unto themselves. There is no one in hell who's not there who can blame anyone else but themselves. Now again, difficult truths. Because you immediately want to run back and say, but what about this? You find out throughout Scripture, it was never just random. God did not just randomly choose. There is a, there is a, a, a mystery to this. When Paul declares, what then? Who is Paul referring to as part of this proof? Literally, we might say, Paul, as he says, what then? He's, he's, he's giving this idea. What can you say to what's just been said? Somebody who would advocate 
that this is by works and not by grace. What could you say? I don't believe there's a lot of value in it, but if I was to bring a man up on stage who was a, wanted to debate about whether salvation was by grace or by works, and we would argue back and forth with what the Bible says about grace, what the Bible says about works, what could he really say to Romans 11.6? Typically, those who believe in salvation by works, here's how they try to, try to get their way out of that, how they squeeze out of that. They say, this is just for the Jews. All right, let's, let's narrow it down to just for the Jews. Then what do you do with what God is saying about some of the Jews who don't get it and some who did? Why are some Jews blinded and some are able to give sight? Did their works fail? What's the reason? I mentioned a couple weeks ago, we seem to be okay that God was fine in choosing certain Jews. But when he starts to choose where it meets our houses and it meets our homes, suddenly now we're wondering, can this election thing be okay? Is this real? See, we're okay if it's somebody else. As long as I'm chosen, I'm okay. And I would still tell you, as long as I'm chosen, I'm okay. You still have the wrong view of this. All right? If that's your attitude this morning, <laughs> at least I'm chosen. You've got the wrong attitude on this. You're still viewing this from a human lens. Paul had already said, it's very clear, God has not cast away all the Jews. Because remember, his first proof was, I'm one of them. So it can't be all the Jews being cast away. Why did God spare me, so to speak? The principle and the truth here is God has not cast away all the Jews, nor has he cast off any that he foreknew and gave, that the Father gave to Christ in any period of time. There has never been one lost that God the Father gave to the Son. The Bible proves that out. And verse, verse number, second part of verse 7, what then? He says, Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for. Israel didn't receive what they were trying to get. Now, this is a reference back to carnal Israel. The, the majority or the bulk of the people of Israel were seeking life and eternal life and righteousness by deeds and keeping the ceremonies and attempting to keep the moral law. Now, that on itself, on a service, is absolutely impossible. But that's what they were seeking. Israel was seeking righteousness, but they were seeking it by keeping the law. Works. They sought righteousness in the wrong place, and they sought righteousness in the wrong way. But the Bible does say this. They, did, they didn't obtain. Notice what your Bible says. Israel hath not obtained that which he seeketh for, but the election hath obtained it, and the rest were blinded. In other words, those that had obtained it, what they were seeking for, so to speak, election obtained it. Not their works, not their good deeds. Election hath obtained it, but don't miss this, and the rest were blinded. If you look at your Bible, you will see there's a very clear line of division between, but the election hath obtained it, comma, and the rest were blinded. Now, if they did not get it by righteousness, by doing their own good deeds and by their own works, how did they obtain righteousness? Election hath obtained it. But the rest were what? Told to consider it? 
It said they were blinded. Were they said, go home and think about this? Go home and consider if you want to accept my way? Or were they judicially blinded? They were judicially and justly blinded. Now again, my humanity says, but why? I find myself reading the Bible often saying, but why? Why? And I'm finding that a lot of that is because I'm still somehow trying to make all the pieces of the puzzle fit. I'm trying to make it humanly make sense. And if I could just get those pieces of the puzzle, it would complete the idea. I don't mean to be irreverent by this. We did two puzzles over Christmas and we lost pieces. We worked for hours on these things. We have no idea where they went. And they're still set up in our basement because I refuse to tear them down because we spent so much time on them. And we looked at them and looked at But I go down and I look and they said, but there's a piece missing. And the puzzle is just, it's not complete. And I see it and I'm still looking for that puzzle piece. As if if I find that one piece and I put it in there, I'm going to say, ta-da, now I got it. And in a strange sort of way, that's what we're doing with this. We think, God, if you'll just give me that one extra puzzle piece that I can just put right in there, then I'm going to be able to humanly understand all of these great doctrines and say, ha I got it. And then just sit down and say, now, God, everything you do, I understand. Amen. The problem is, that's not going to help you. Because this puzzle is well beyond our ability to think humanly. You're talking about something that is spiritually discerned and you are wasting your time to argue with another person who's trying to argue, humanly speaking, why this isn't fair and why it doesn't make sense. Don't waste your time. If you're going to spend time arguing with people, give them scripture. Human debates, that's what they do. They spiral into human thinking and before you know it, it's not even an argument anymore. It's just two people yelling at each other. It serves no purpose. So this election hath obtained it. Now, does this mean that all of Israel had obtained righteousness? No, he says some obtained it by election, others were blinded. Israel as a whole has not obtained righteousness before God, but there is an elect remnant that has. And we do know that there is coming a day when Israel's eyes will be opened again. We know God is not through with Israel. Many people say if you preach the doctrines of grace, you don't, you don't believe Israel is still a nation and Israel is still important. Again, that is a fallacy. That is not true at all. People say if you have some idea of covenant theology that you don't believe in the, in the importance of Israel, that is not true at all. See, man just starts making up excuses because they don't understand it. But here's what we know. There is an elect remnant that Paul is mentioning, and there are some that were blinded as an act of what? It's an act of God's divine sovereignty. We had dealt with this all the way back in Romans chapter number 9, verse 18, when the Bible said this, Therefore hath he mercy on whom he will have mercy, and whom he will hardeneth. He is the one that determines that. Now again, I can make the convenient argument if I don't like these doctrines. Well, that deals with Israel. You've still got bigger problems if this just deals with Israel. You've got a lot of splaining to do is what they say. Because how are you going to reconcile how did God choose which part of Israel? What did he base it on? 
See, we somehow think if God just chooses them all, or here's the sad reality, we think if God wants to be fair and just in our minds, we ought to believe in universal salvation. Now, let's be, let's be totally honest with each other this morning, okay? What seems more fair to you? Everybody gets in. Ultimately, we can all do whatever we want. But at the end of the day, if you die, you're still going to go to heaven. That seems fair. Why? Because we're all, generally, we're good people. We say in our minds a few exceptions. Maybe this person shouldn't. Maybe this person should. But for the most part, we're all good. I, I'd rather believe in universal salvation because it seems like it makes more sense. But yet there is not a hint, not even a single verse that you can point to in its proper context that says all will be saved. So again, we somehow seem better with the idea, well, God should at least give them a chance. The realities that we're dealing with today Paul is not talking about things that make God what we want him to be. We're dealing with a God who has declared what is. What is. See, God's not a, up for debate. We're trying to debate God. We're trying to tell God, here's what I think it ought to be. Here's how I think it ought to go. But Paul very clearly divides Israel into two parts. The election and the rest. The chosen ones obtained mercy, grace, righteousness in Christ. Paul was living proof of that. The rest were left in darkness. And again, you could argue why. Don't forget that there is a judgment for the sin of man. Don't lose sight of the fact that the problem with your universal salvation theory is what are you going to do with all the sins of mankind? What are you going to do with them? We, we have a simple way of dealing with it. We categorize it. We say this sin is worse than the other. And okay, here's my, here's my list of what gets you to heaven. You don't do these. But if you do these over here, you're still all right. That's where we don't understand sin and you don't understand depravity. Because if you think there's any sin that's okay or not as bad, that's where you begin to build this idea of Maybe I should have my own choice in the matter. That's the problem. Remember that enemy of the soul? That subtlety that comes in? That, that idea that comes into our mind that thinks, eh, God's unjust here. God's demands are too much. This doesn't make any sense. Let's just go and form our own doctrine. Let's form our own way. Paul is proving this, and he then says in verse number 8, as, as it is written, God hath given them a spirit of slumber. Who is God punishing here? He's punishing the self-righteous. He's punishing those who are seeking what Israel was seeking in the wrong way. They were seeking their own righteousness. Now, I'm going I'm to tell you this, and this will probably make some of us mad. Every one of us in some shape or form seeks our own righteousness. And we do that often daily and don't even know it. Now, I'm not saying you're not saved. I'm not saying we've not been converted, but I am telling you this. We are always trying to compare ourselves to not being as bad as the other, thinking that that equates better righteousness. If I'm not, so, if I'm not as bad, humanly speaking, as the inmate in the county jail. 
Is that true? Am I as bad as he is? Biblically, yes. Are there believers in jail? Yeah. There are. But I'm telling you, we establish our own righteousness and we say, listen, that person, I'm telling you, they're just awful. And people do awful things. I've watched, I've, and I've told you this, I've watched preachers who I never thought, I never in a million years thought they would commit things that they committed. Men that left their families, men that were once in ministry who are no longer in ministry and ones who are back in ministry who shouldn't be in ministry, who have now created a whole new, brand new life for themselves as if nothing happened. The reality is, is we have this measure in our mind of what would be fair. And what's fair to us is, here's the mentality, just give everybody a choice. So if we give everybody just a free will choice, are you still all right with people in hell today? I would hope not. I would hope you're not okay with people in hell believing what we believe. It ought to still burden you beyond belief that people are dying without Christ. None of these doctrines should hinder your evangelistic zeal and your desire for the gospel to go forward. None of these things that are preached here and taught here should dampen that at all. And if it does, you're misunderstanding this. You say, are there really people that do this? Absolutely. Remember I told you when all these doctrines couldn't be understood, there were people that erred on this side who said, listen, this is all man's free will. And you've got these people who went the far other side who said, listen, this is out of your hands. Don't do anything. God determined it already. There's nothing you can do. So we're just going to sit here. We're not going to do anything. We're just going to be still because God just handpicks them and picks them out and we can't do anything about it. That's wrong too. So what does the Bible teach? Right there where we're seated right now. God has judicially elected some and has blinded others. Can we fully comprehend it? No. Does it hinder our gospel zeal? No, it should not. But what is God punishing? He's punishing self-righteous. He takes away their sense. He puts them in what, what is referred to here as a deep or spirit of slumber. That is a deep sleep. Eyes that they should not see and ears that they should not hear. Unto this day. Paul says that God gives them eyes that can't see the truth. God gives them ears that cannot hear the truth. No matter which way you want to divide the Bible, and we would call it rightly dividing, the Scriptures teach there is a doctrine of reprobation or the doctrine of rejection. That God has decreed not to save some sinners, but instead to harden them. Deuteronomy 29.4 and Isaiah 29.10 are two references you can go back to and look on your own time and you'll see the same terminology being used. Deuteronomy 29.4 and Isaiah 29.10. Eyes being blinded and ears being stopped. What does it emphasize? It emphasizes the action of God. God is the one that is acting. God hath given them, God hath given them the spirit of slumber. If we're not careful, we just say God has given everybody the idea, just believe. 
then what do we do with these verses? We can't escape them. And then verses 9 and 10, David saith, saith, let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. This idea, David saith, this is Paul looking beyond David and he's looking at the kingdom of God. And David was a representative of the kingdom of God. David represented Christ as the son of David. He's, he's looking at that David saith or David as a type of Christ says, let their table, now this table throughout the scripture, you'll study this, is normally something of benefit. It's something normally that symbolizes provision. You know, it, I think it's an important, this is an important side note. When you sit down at a meal, and maybe it's your own home table, and you think about it, that table, and you've got food on that table, you're looking at the provision of God. Okay? If you're an unbeliever, you're looking at the provision of God. He said, unbelievers don't pray and thank God for the benefits of food. No, they don't thank God for anything. They're ungrateful. That's why it's such a sad day and age when those of us who know what the benefits and the provision of God that are seated right in front of us and we grow unthankful and we grow ungrateful and the enemy of the soul comes in and it comes in subtly and before we know it, we're not even grateful for all that we have. The simple things. It's never enough. I need more. But look what he says about this table. Let their table be made a snare and a trap and a stumbling block and a recompense unto them. Normally that table should have been for their benefit, but it's now being made something harmful as a recompense or a what? A payback for their wickedness. Darkness Verse 10, let their eyes be darkened, darkness blinded to the truth. They're back alway. That, that phrase, back alway, it's, it's to be to bow down. Paul writes here that this blinding, this judicial blinding, this spirit of slumber that's given, God now takes what should have been a benefit to them that they refused and rejected, and now it turns into a trap. I was watching this. I was watching this video yesterday. I, I don't even know why this popped into my mind. And this man, I don't know what country it was, but he, he came upon. I don't know if it was a leopard or some kind of a some kind of a wild cat of some sort, and his foot was caught in a trap. The man didn't set the trap. The man was trying to get the animal out. This animal was vicious. I mean, his, his, his front paw was caught in that trap, and you could see it was locked on. The guy had one of those, uh, one of those um, it's, it's on a, it has a pole and it has a, an extension on it, and you can put it around the, their neck and then grab a hold of them so they can't do anything. And he, every time he tried to put that thing around, that cat wanted nothing to do with this man. And the minute that he got that around him, that, that cat went nuts was flailing all over, just, I mean, almost like the cat's going to break his neck. Doesn't he know that this man is trying to get him out of the trap? The cat had no idea. I don't even think the cat really had an idea that his foot was even caught. 
He just sees this other man who's trying to benefit the cat by getting him out of it. Well, he got the, the thing around the cat's neck and got him down to where he couldn't move. And you watch all this unfold and you're thinking, wow, this is cruel. It looks cruel. Until you find out that while he's got the cat on the ground, he reaches down, he unsnaps the trap, and he lets his foot go. His, he lets, his foot's released. He throws the trap aside and then he walks over and he, at a distance, which I'm like, that guy's brave anyway. I'm not even getting anywhere close to this. He undoes the thing. Now, that, he's done all this. This cat is mad. I'm still wondering, do I want to let this cat go? So he backs away and you can see him undo it. He takes a little noose off the neck and the cat literally just sits there and looks. And I'm sitting there thinking, okay, this is either going to be one of those videos that needs to be taken down for gore but that cat looked at him, and he looked at the man, he looked around, and he got up, and that cat just walked away. Now, I don't know why I'm bringing that up other than the fact, you, you see illustrations in the world that demonstrate some of these truths. God is a benefit, and God is trying, and he is, it is not that God is, is, is not showing himself. When these fields around us start growing, and they will, and it's coming, praise God, it's coming. There are farmers all over, this, all over this state who will not take one minute to thank God that there are crops in that field. They'll thank God for their, they'll thank themselves for the ingenuity, how they've got the latest farming standard, and now I can really make things grow. Remember, we started off by the enemy of the soul being so subtle. Folks, we are not beyond the ability of getting to a place where we can become ensnared with the realities that we somehow made our own way. Listen, without God, we're just like that cat that stayed, would have stayed ensnared. It's an amazing truth that Paul says they had the benefit of the Lord's table, what God had given them, right in front of them. We say, this is so unfair. Why did God do this? They had it. They were ungrateful. They were unthankful. And they sought righteousness by their own means. How did that animal get trapped in that trap to begin with? Usually something's placed in it. It's called bait. Oh, you can take your chances, just throw one out in the wild and hope they step on it, but most of the time you put something in it. Israel tried everything they could, their own righteous works, their own activities, their own things, and yet the Bible says that God gave them the spirit of slumber as a recompense for their own self-righteousness. If this was not an election of grace, then it would have to be of works. It's either grace or works. It can't be one of the, it's, it's, it can't be both. It's not a combination of two. It is grace or it's work. Today, you either believe in grace or you believe in works. You say, I take the position of both. You're in the wrong position. You can't have it both ways. Salvation from beginning to end must be either a free grace or owed debt. You either got free grace and the debt was removed or you paid your own way. You paid your own debt. Those thoughts are so contrary to one another, you cannot blend them together. 
why God glorified himself by presenting and giving to us his free grace. He changed our hearts. He changed our, our tempers. He changed our attitude. He turned us in from a rebel to a believer. If that's true for you today, how is there anything left on our lips but praise? If that's true today, how can we say, how, would, how can we have anything but praise for God instead of arguing with God? We'll deal with this next week. But just as a preview for verse 11, Paul says, I say then, have they stumbled that they should fall? God forbid. But rather through their fall, salvation has come unto the Gentiles for it to provoke them to jealousy. That tells us God had a purpose in what he did in the election of some and the blinding of others. And part of that, folks, hold on to your pews, was for your benefit. So that you might see and that Israel might be an example as to the actions of God. What an amazing truth that you have a completed copy of God's word that reveals the mind of God. Now again, I could stand up here today and I could tell you everything that's going on in this head of mine and you wouldn't understand a lot of it. I don't even understand a lot of it. Can you relate to that? My mind is full of things. If I said everything I was thinking, you'd be, you'd be frightened. Because that's who we are. That's, that's, how, we, that's, that's how we function. We, we have so many things going on in our mind and so many uh, contrasting views of things that we have a hard time just looking at the truth and saying, listen, I may not understand all of this, but if I truly believe the Bible is his inspired word, then why struggle with it? You either believe this is God's mind or it's not. He never said, understand everything about me. But he has given you the only book that will ever exist that reveals to you who God is. So if you come to me saying, I don't use the Bible, God just speaks to me at night in visions and he comes and speaks to me audibly, I'll say, no, he does not. That's your own mind creating that. God speaks to you through his word. You know why it's gotten so popular to go this charismatic way of having new revelations from God? Because they don't like what the Bible says because they don't fully understand it. So let's create something that sounds good. No, God doesn't need to show himself in any other way than this book. He's already revealed it. Folks, if you believe that this is in the inspired word of God, even when you come across tough passages like this, Understand the Holy Spirit's going to give you discernment. And if he gives you clarity and gives you understanding, don't argue with God. Don't argue with him. Because you will find yourself soon drifting out on your own saying, hey, this Bible thing, I really don't need God in this. This sounds pretty good. And before you know it, you'll be part of a church that doesn't even use this book anymore. And folks, they are out there. There are Baptist churches today that will never even open this book today. And they're full of people. I like that church. It's not too biblical. The doctrine and the preaching is not too hard. As soon as someone can convince me we need something more than this, I'm open to it. But we have everything we need in this book. And I know we can trust him. Let's stand together if you would and we'll be dismissed in prayer. And again, I hope that our minds have been stirred and we know that 
I can't give us understanding in this. Only the Lord can do it. And the Holy Spirit can teach us. As you're standing, the Bible tells us in 1 Peter 1, verse 13, Wherefore, gird up the loins of your mind, be sober, and hope to the end for the grace that is to be brought unto you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, not fashioning yourselves according to the former lusts in your ignorance, but as he which hath called you is holy, so be ye holy in all manner of conversation. Because it is written, be ye holy, for I am holy. Let's pray together. Father, Lord, we thank you for this time that we've had together already. We thank you for the stirring that the Holy Spirit has conducted in our hearts. And Lord, I don't think any of us today desire to come to you with a desire to bring you down to our level or to make you uh, more like what we want you to be. But Father, I do pray today that, Lord, that as the Word of God has been given, the Word of God has been preached, as we have prayed, as the hymns have been sung, that, Lord, none of this was done with a sense of an act or a work of righteousness, that we understand that none of these things and our attendance to them has brought or will bring or will keep any aspect of our salvation. Lord, we know we are saved by grace, not grace plus works, saved by grace. Lord, will works follow because we've been converted? Absolutely. Should we be living for you in every aspect of our life? Should we be holy as Christ is holy? And the answer is certainly yes. But Lord, I pray today that you would just remind us again, Lord, deliver us from that, that subtle enemy that could so easily infiltrate us and before we know it, we have become self-dependent. Father, I pray that that would not be the case. Lord, I pray now that you go with us into a time of fellowship, Lord. May it be encouraging and edifying. Prepare our hearts for the next hour, Lord, when the word of God is preached yet again. And it's in Christ's name I pray. Amen.